This is the Bushwick Variety Show, and I'm Alex Stevens III. Greetings, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. This episode features writer Carolyn Kingans, who just released a new book of poetry called Before the Big Bang Makes a Sound. There is a link in the show notes if you want to buy the book online, and also the book is available in several New York stores, including Barnes & Noble, Greenlight, Book Culture, and Burroughs Poetry Club. And if you are New York-based, you can check her out, along with some other authors, at Burroughs Poetry Shop this Friday. So depending on when you're listening to this, that might be today, that might be tomorrow. But Friday the 28th, um, from 7 to 9 p.m. And there will be a link to that event in the show notes as well. So I had a great conversation with her talking about writing, talking about the process of writing and publishing a book. Um, so I had a great time getting to know her. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And so without further ado, this is Carolyn Kenyon's. Let's have a conversation. Musicians, actors are kind of actors are kind of split on whether they want the headphones or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am talking to you, Carolyn Kingians, um, about before the Big Bang makes a sound, uh, a collection of poetry poems mm-hmm. uh, about yeah. So that's your new book that is out and available now. Correct, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble on Court Street, and also online. And um, green light on Fulton and Book Culture and Burl's uh, Burl's Poetry Shop um, in Dumbo. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for reaching out to me and sitting down. And you know, we're just going to talk about it and talk about your process. So, when did uh, writing, like, when did you start writing, or when did you, mm-hmm. I guess, fall in love with writing? Would be a better. That's a great that. question. Um, I think for me, it was music. I grew up, you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids, you know, Northeast Philly, row home. We didn't have necessarily the classics on the shelf or, you know, the poetry collection, you know, laying around. So for me, and not just, you know, not just writing and poetry, but also about life. You know, music was a companion in my head. You know, it it psyched me up to to meet people or, you know, social anxiety. I was, you know, I would listen to music and I was able to go to that party. And so it was a companion and it was also a poetry catalyst as well. Um, I remember in 1993 being on Roosevelt Boulevard, driving to Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, where I was a fashion design major, a little bit of a departure from what I'm doing now. But um, I remember hearing the song by... um, Counting Crows called um, Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me. Um, he was singing the part in the beginning where he, he sings, um, we all want something beautiful. Man, I wish I was beautiful. And that's just, just the language and just the play of beautiful. And that started for me. Also, um, being in high school, I remember in 1992, um, I had this weird memory thing you might pick up on. But in 1992, I remember I was in my family room, and um, Silent All These Years came on VH1. And when she, again, sang, um, 
So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. What's so amazing about really deep thoughts? Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. How's that thought for you? So these are kind of the catalysts for me um, that stayed in my head. And back then you would go to Stan Goody, you know, get the, get the CD, mm-hmm. come home, play it, lay on my day bed, you know, and read all of Tori Amos' lyrics. So that was the catalyst. I mean, it wasn't books. It wasn't the classics. And then in 1995, I met a man, and we had this mutual love of music. And I was going to a Christian university, quite fundamental. I didn't fit in. Never felt like I fit in. And uh, he, we started talking about music. And he was an older gentleman, and, and nothing, it was all platonic. But um, he said to me, he, he gave me a book, um, A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. It's 600 pages. I never was an avid reader avid music listener but not an avid reader and I devoured that book and then I devoured the next John Irving book which was A World According to Garp and so that kind of led me on the path of more poetry you know that kind of was the catalyst for for going into the direction of literature and then I was an English major I switched majors and um, in addition to going to that conservative (laughs) conservative Christian university uh, which will will remain nameless um, it, no, it was a good school, and, and I had scholarships and good people, and I had a good education, but um, I digress. But I saved money. I worked you know, while I was in school, and I saved my money, and I took um, a class, um, African-American Women Literature at University of Virginia. It took us like a whole month. Oh. Yeah, well, 1997. That gives, me, 1997. That gives me a clue just because I have a friend. I, actually, when I went back to school, I went to VCU, mm-hmm. and a couple of friends who were starting Richmond, a sophomore. Right? Uh-huh. Um, were they were actually kicked out of uh, Liberty University? University. Okay, that's where uh, I went. <laughs> that's funny. It's, like when you were yeah. saying, I was like, I. That's the one that I know because they were. Yeah, yeah, they were kicked out and came to VCU. In all seriousness, like I, I really did. Like, like I had friends, and there's a lot of creative people, and a lot of good, a lot of good um, there. But yeah, it's not popular right now, and I, I just don't think. You should mix Christianity with politics. I think, I just, I, I think, because that's For a whole other subject. Po- yeah. yeah, I just I mean, a whole other subject. It's yeah. so heavy and it separates people. Mm-hmm. And Christ was not about that, you know. So um, anyway, I don't want to go there, but um, yeah. So I did work, and I took a class there, and I also took a class in another uh, all women's school that taught contemporary American literature, and that's where I learned Muddy Waters. We would go into the listening lab. Oh my word, I got chills. Bruce Springsteen. I hated Bruce Springsteen until I took this class. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, um, Alice Walker, Ken Kesey. Um, oh, there's so many great. Oh, we watched uh, the World of Court. Uh, no, we watched um, My Dinner with Andre. Um, classic New York film, 1981. I still go back to that film. Um, Shortcuts, Raymond Carver. So these are all part of the tapestry that kind of came to this and also when I was growing up I was an observer I was always observing I always felt like I just didn't fit in like I don't know why maybe that was just mean as not you know putting it on other people and I take responsibility for that but I was always watching you know it's kind of like playing double dutch and you're kind of waiting to go in and you don't know when to go in Mm -hmm. you know and that's kind of what it was like kind of what do I so I was always watching and so I just naturally incorporated that style into my poetry so it's it's observational it's intuitive it's um an outsider perspective there's a lot of poems like that in the book nice i 
love poetry also and similarly came to it probably through music Mm -hmm. um i was listening more to music like r&b and soul a lot um but i grew up in the hip-hop era and i remember the 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 rapper that like really clicked with me first and there's like the debate over these two um, and that's Tupac and Biggie. Yep. And east, West, me, East, West. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, for me, it was always Tupac because to me, he and the argument against him sometimes like, oh, he was more of a poet. But to me, mm-hmm. that poetry that he had, like the from the moment I heard it, I was like, oh, I get it. Like I kind of mm-hmm. understood storytelling as a form from him. Exactly. And then like when when I started writing music, actually it started kind of as poetry first and then and then grew into music yeah, yeah so very... it, it, they they run parallel mm-hmm. and they're actually i say rap or hip hop i know rap i say rap is now it's hip hop but the same i think it should be studied in high oh, school yeah. all the way up it just like i studied muddy waters and bruce springsteen they contribute i mean it is american art form mm-hmm. and you have to be really smart to rap and you, and I live in Biggie's neighborhood. Like, his murals are everywhere. He yep. worked at Key Foods. Yeah. Okay? Um, and at Juicy, that film, um, the video Juicy, it's right on, the, I pass it all the time because they have a mural there. And he, he's he's amazing. I mean, just, it, it should be studied. And and um, it's storytelling. It's modern storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, sure. But I guess I have to say I'm a Biggie fan. But I get what you're saying about Tupac. He is a poet. No question. Yeah, and I mean, they both are. I yeah. guess it's just... Um, well, he, like, studied it, I think, right? Didn't he go to a fine art? Yeah. Like, a, like Tupac, he went to actually, a... he went... He So that's another thing that's interesting yeah. about him. He's actually from Harlem originally, and then grew oh. up in Baltimore. Um, and so he was in a performance arts high school in Baltimore mm-hmm. with Jada Pinkett. And then, like, oh, towards yeah, the end of high that. school, he You're went right. to L.A. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he he's actually had acting training, dancing training. So he was an overall artist, but also mm-hmm. was coming of age kind of in the the first like prime of hip hop. So he you know, yeah. that he took to that. Yeah. And I have to say the nineties was the best. Yeah, I'm, best I'm with music. you. I'm with I mean, you on that. And some of the eighties, like I, I used to um I loved like New Order, Joy Division um, you know, 19, like I got into them in the mid eighties, you know, psychedelic furs and then, you know, but I love everything but country mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't really, you know, well, country, but I know that it's, it has, but progressed. then like talking yeah. about poetry, um, like the line between blues and country, yeah, cause like Johnny, true. Johnny Cash, for example, exactly. or Dolly Parton, those two like no, you're right. kind of transcend that genre. And it's like, goes back to the, the blues and like the storytelling yeah. aspect of it. Versus, yeah, I'm not a fan of all country, but I yeah. can appreciate no, the, you're absolutely right. the more folky stuff. Yeah, you know? no, 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 you're absolutely right. And I'm so sorry to miss that, but you're, yeah, you're true. That's true. Um, but I did not really have any exposure to that growing up in Seattle. Same here. Yeah. And so it wasn't until <laughs> yeah. Virginia that I realized people actually listen to country. And to my shock, black people actually listen to country <laughs> in the, in the South. Like that just was not. Like, nobody was listening to yeah. that in Seattle. You know, yeah. if you were, you yeah. were, like, the odd exactly unicorn, like, <laughs> didn't exist in Seattle, like, when I was growing up, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Seattle's the best, you know. 
It was pretty cool. Um, you, you, we were talking about that earlier, like the grunge scene. Yes. Um, yes. but also a lot of people don't know this, uh, but Ishmael Butler, who's, um, moniker was Butterfly, mm-hmm. and he was kind of the leader of Diggable Planets. Oh, okay. Um, who oh. they got known as a Brooklyn group, and he was he did come to Brooklyn, but yeah, oh, he's oh, a yeah. Seattle cat. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I know. I just um, it was just a, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. It just kind of came so fast, you know. And I re- I wrote an um an essay, on um. I wrote an essay on Generation X, mm-hmm. and it was published in a, actually a Brooklyn journal called Across the Margin. I'll sh- do a shout out. Is that what you say? Shout out? Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind yep. of middle aged no, now. That's actually exactly. Is it. that how you say it? Okay. Yep. Um, so I'll do a shout out to Across the Margin, Mike Shields. He's great. And um, anyway, it was about music and poetry and how it all came together. Um, you know. Now I digressed. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. This, this is what it is. Okay. It's a conversation. But um, anyway, um, it was about, oh, I know what I was going to say. MTV. Mm-hmm. I was born in 74. MTV came out August, I think, 12, 1981 was the first time it, it was it was at midnight. Um, it was Bubbles, the Bubbles or whatever. R- radio killed the, the wait. Right. Mu- video killed the radio, radio star. star. Uh-huh. So I wrote an, uh, an essay, and it was just published not too long ago. But anyway, it was... You know, MTV ran parallel to my life. It was like an autobiographical, you know, it, it was in all my memories. Um, and then somewhere in the early 2000s, you know, I almost had like a, a little bit of a quasi uh, pseudo like midlife or early midlife crisis. Like, you know, all of a sudden we were kicked out and this generation millennial or the generation Y was in and this millennials. And all of a sudden, the commercials weren't connecting with me. You know, I all these new music I never heard of before. I was probably like 25, so trying to do the math. That's too hard. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so I wrote an article about that and just how kind of being like, you know, that saying, oh, he's just not that into you, kind of like, that's how it felt. Like, we were kind of, you know, pushed out. And that why I came back to that story of the essay is only because of grunge, how it came and went. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, it was like, I guess, my Bruce Springsteen's glory days, college days, you know, no responsibility. You're, 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 I'm reading books like you would not believe. I can't do that now. I have two kids. So it's a much challenging. But, um, yeah, so that's why I brought back the essay from uh, Across the Margin. But I did write in the beginning. Um, I went to this, growing up in Philadelphia, we went to this kind of like fundamental Baptist church, kind of like Footloose. And um, we would, on Monday nights, they had Monday night, you know, Christian skate, you know, with the organ music and a DJ who played Christian music like Amy Grant and the Hokey Pokey. But somewhere in between there, the this daring DJ like threw in Rick James, Super Freak. I'm seven years old. I'm like, this is the most badass song. I'm bobbing my head around that skating rink. And actually, when I met my brother-in-law, and I have this family, like we're seven, you know, the oldest is like 19 years older than me. Like there's this huge, they're all scattered. And so when my sister brought home her husband, I said, you know, I know a song. And he's like, oh, you do? And this is like notorious in our family. And, and I said, yeah. I said, um, and he's thinking like, you know, my little sunshine or some Christian song. And I'm like, I'm a very kinky girl. And I'm like singing uh, Rick James. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Rick was, uh, he's an interesting one too. Because yeah. like a lot of people. That beat, like just, I mean, that was original for 1981, mm-hmm. you know. 
So it was Neil Diamond's America, and then he upstirped um, Neil Diamond. So that was what the article's about, or the essay. Just yeah. kind of a, the Just changing of the guards? Or? Changing the guards, the whole MTV parallel. I talked about that and talked about how music, just like we're talking about music, was the epitaph for the poetry mm-hmm. the catalyst. So it's all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm technically probably, we were called Generation Y. Like I'm born in 81. Okay. But basically. You're on, right on the cutoff, well, right? Well, what's interesting is with 81, like I remember in around 2010 like jokes about millennials and i remember like kind of like haha and then when i started reading what the jokes were yeah i was like wait a second like the snowflake this is talking about but well but also like about what like millennials have and like what the job Mm. market looks like for millennials and i was like wait a second this is talking about me and what's going on and it wasn't like there i've heard some things between like X and millennials, but there's more, it was more, I was realizing where this, where the voice was coming from. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stuff like criticizing millennials for the way they are like, there's a, so there's some, me, I grew up with like inner, like I grew up kind of seeing everything. Like, so I grew up with, we had a rotary phone when I was a kid and then um computers were always there as a kid but like they were more analog at first and then kind of as I grew up like computers graduated um I didn't have an email in high school like right after high school I had an email I didn't have a cell phone in high school right after high school I had a cell phone um so it was kind of like I came like my I'm like the elder millennial (laughs) so it's like my generation came of age like with the internet Mm -hmm. um but yeah, one of the things that's like I've take like I don't really say Generation Y anymore. Some people do, yeah. and there's like the Zennial thing yeah. that talks about. But it's kind of I think certain generations get you get like mixed in, and I also kind of think the generation you are is like it's not just when you were born; like it's like when you were coming of age. I, I think that that yeah. it is and I was like I graduated in 99 so it's like mm-hmm. that's like right at the turn of the millennial. Yeah. Um but basically I've taken to considering myself a millennial more because I think there's a real problem with like the boomers and like the older generation kind of um being really judgmental on like the lives of millennials I agree. when it's like millennials didn't make the world the way it is now, you know? Exactly. Like we didn't run up the cost of college. We didn't look, we're in a mess now. Um, We are, we are. And actually not to plug my husband's company, but they're mm -hmm. doing, they're a change agent Mm. in regards to that. Yellow brick, yellow brick.co. Plug them. Oh yeah. (laughs) What, what, what's that about? It's fascinating. Um, exactly what we're talking about. It has to do with um, passion points of millennials and Z, Generation Z. And um, it's all the creative passions, mm-hmm. music, uh, streetwear, sneakers, um, the culture, um, business, fashion. Um, so what what Yellow Brick does is they kind of bring in, they're the, kind of the middle person, but they bring in like um, FIT, Parsons, NYU. And then they bring in a brand like Complex. And they bring in, and, they, and, and it's kind of compared comparative to cinema mm-hmm. is e-learning but it's it's a cima- cinematic experience especially on the sneakers i mean it, it goes through history 
marketing, um, even from a medical perspective in terms of sports and how you would move on that shoe and and all about that um, design. It's not just design, but it's everything, retail, everything. And some of the courses are, um, you know, 30, 40 hours, but they're broken up. And um, and I'm really proud of this. They actually made a, a, a middle, no, I think a middle school version of the sneaker program, Sneaker Essentials. And they have it in the public schools, I think nine public schools for free. And the kids are so excited. And they're doing like, these poster boards and these sneakers. And they know about toe tapping and all, all this interesting, you know, thing. And so, um, and they have a DJ Clark Kent involved. They have a scholarship. I'm going to mess up her name and I'm so sorry. But Rose, Mc, Ro, she's like a ESPN newscaster for women. She's a woman newscaster. Rose McGowan. She's from, she's from this area. Um, Sophia Chang scholarship and Marcus um, Wiley, I think. Mm-hmm. So they have all these scholarships, and they're doing such amazing things. Um, you know, in the in th- there's even more in the works. They're doing a gaming one next on Saturday. My husband was um, at this. Um, it's like an NBA draft for gaming, and it was at the. It was uh, out in, um, I think, near like Terminal Five. I think it's called Terminal mm-hmm. Five. And yeah. They had this big event, and these kids were making like a hundred thousand a year, and it's all like. Then th- they they're gamers. Yeah, it's that's, fascinating. That's a hilarious thing too of the whole thing of, uh, <laughs> like, which we did not have when we, I right. was <laughs> no, but like talking I remember, about that. don't waste your life playing video games. Exactly, and there's kids that are making millions. Exactly, it's crazy. It, it is insane, and this YouTube and and I think that's I think your generation and also Z is more entrepreneurial, you know. Well, yeah, I think it's like out of necessity too. Yeah, exactly. You're you're. The youth is carving their own way. They have to, because I guess the older generation kind of set it up. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I totally see that. Yeah. That was uh, we were talking before this, like, because I had my dad on the podcast, mm-hmm. like, um, like, yeah, at the beginning of this year, and like he's more. He grew up in a different time, so he's a little bit more um, believes in the establishment more, more than me. Like he knows things are wrong. Also, he just just the way we think about change is a little bit different, Mm -hmm. but we were, it was nice because we were able to have a conversation and just hear each other. We, we didn't have an argument, which I think is super important for what's happening. For generation. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of my mentors, we have completely (laughs) different ideas about um, the, like the current presidential election and, yeah like she just thinks what i i think is impossible and i'm like it's not like nothing's impossible it's what what we make it and i think that's yeah that's what we have to believe like oh yeah and and that's what it is everything is what you make it you know oh of course and i think that's now more than ever before um yeah yeah um so let's talk about talk about this book a little bit before the Big Bang makes a sound, where does that name come from? Um, the name comes from a poem called High Anxiety. It's the last line in the poem. And this poem, High Anxiety, is the beating broken heart of the whole collection. Um, I've, I'm going to be open. I've suffered from anxiety. Um, and I wouldn't say that this book is a singular voice or my voice per se. I, I'm definitely there. But it's a collective voice. And I would say it's more feminine, you know. Um, and 
you know, she or the, the collective voice is, is intuitive, an outsider, an observer, you know, navigating through heartache, through freakish accidents, through um, regret, ghosts, um, you know, as going through it with the landscape of the beautiful, gritty, you know, landscape of New York City. So um, taking in everything and, um, yeah, and, and so far um, I've the feedback I've gotten has been really positive, but sometimes it doesn't resonate with some people. I mean, that's just poetry. Sometimes it's, you know, it resonates with everybody and that's great. Sometimes some people may love it, some may not. So, but um, yeah, I'm finally pursued my dream um, at almost 46 next month. So perfect but that's time okay. yeah. right now. Yeah, but I had two children. This, these poems were written between 2008 and 2019. That's mm-hmm. 11 years. So um, I just want to encourage anyone out there um, not that, you know, I don't expect to make millions. That's not why I did it. I will write for free. I will write till the day I take my last breath. Um, if anyone sees it, I don't, I don't care. I, I'm going to write. Um, however, I just want to encourage everyone out there, just pursue your dream. Pursue, pursue your bliss. Because then you don't become a clock watcher. I was always a clock watcher. And prior to this, I, um, I was, I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I also freelance write. And creative writing is my dream. Um, and I, what I love to do and what comes natural for me. But um, prior to that, I worked in 12 plus years in business development. I was a door opener and um, a networker and I was very good at it. So I'm using those skills. Um, that's how I got into Barnes and Noble. I just went there and talked to them and they're like, yeah, you, you know, normally they don't, they don't do, con- they, this is not consignment for Barnes and Noble. They actually ordered it and they usually don't do that. But they, the one in, 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 um, on Court Street in Brooklyn, they've been fantastic and so supportive of local um, poets and writers. I just want to let them you know, do a shout out yeah. uh, to them. Um, so I'm very appreciative. And it, through this process, I have met so many poets and writers and people like you, Alec, who is also an artist and an actor and a writer and a musician, so supportive. And I just want to thank you um, because um, it, 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 sometimes you're alone at night. You're writing at night. You know, my kids are in bed and you're like, why am I doing this? I could be watching Netflix. I could, you know, I could be doing this or that. Um, but something inside me is like, it, it, it's like a peeling of an onion. Mm-hmm. It's like you're trying to get to a core or the truth of something. And so the, I guess the book is um, about that. Nice. And yeah, piggybacking on that, I also think like definitely writing as far as art forms, there are times when it is lonely. Um, yes. And though, like the, when you like are thinking about doing something, but not doing it and thinking like about the loneliness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I find like when you start doing the thing, then you start meeting the other people that are also doing the thing and realize that, yeah, you're not alone. You're part of a community of creatives and, mm-hmm. and yeah, you meet them by, by doing, by doing exactly. it, you know, and putting yourself out there. Yeah. Like, this is putting myself out there, but, um, but it's, it's worth it. It's worth to be a little bit uncomfortable and out of your element um, to make that connection because mm-hmm. that's what life's about. You know, um, I love reading books. I love seeing movies or documentaries where you walk away and you're different. Mm-hmm. Something's different. Like, you know, oh, I don't see that the way I, d- I did before, you know, kind of like a little bit like walking in someone else's shoes. If you can make that connection, um, it's a beautiful thing. I also love like with poems and with stories, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes 
or songs for that matter. Like there are things that sometimes like if you listen to an album, we'll use that example. Yeah. Uh, certain songs will stand out to you. And then if you listen to that same album, like five years later or 10 years later, like maybe your least favorite song from the first time you heard it all of a sudden like pops out in a different way and becomes like your new favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's something I just love about, about art. Like the perspective changes the experience. Oh, for sure. And you have to be open to, um, and that's part of growth and, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's your favorite poem out of the book? Is it, is it that one that you mentioned? Or? It's like saying, what's your, who's your right. favorite child? <laughs> um, I love them all because I think they're all together. Someone said it's like a film, mm-hmm. kind of um, a role. Um, I would say, I mean, I would say High Anxiety is the broken, like the beating broken heart. Okay, that's like the, the nucleus. Um, the title comes from that. But um, to say my favorite, oh. And you don't have to have there's a favorite. A couple, like I'm pretty... There's a couple. And I'm not just saying that. Um, there's a poem called The Northerners, which everyone seems to like. But I wrote it in 2008 when we lived in Virginia. And um, again, it's that observational stance in the poem. And people seem to like that. Also, bathroom crucifix. The first time I touched a crucifix when I was five years old in my grandmother's bathroom. Um, because my parents left the Catholic faith and were Italian. And that kind of caused a micro chasm in our large Italian family. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was big back in like the late 70s, early 80s. You know, you're in Philly. All your neighbors are Catholic, either Irish, Italian, you know, blue, blue collar, lovely people, hardworking people like my parents. My parents, I've never heard, and I swear on the Bible, I've never heard my parents say one racial, one racial thing ever. They welcomed every race in our home. And that really impacted me. Um, really impacted me. And um, Was and that different from like other things you saw like in the outside community, like in the outside neighborhood? I never, yeah, because I never really heard anyone of my friends. I mean, we would play hide and seek. I mean, it was like a city or like in row homes. Yeah. But we did have cars and driveways. That's the only, I guess, guess difference from here. Um, we didn't have subways like under, you know, underwear, under everywhere. But anyway, um, I never really heard that. Um, that's, you know, honestly, that's, that's, um, I always think a fascinating racism thing. is taught. I mean, it's something that is ingrained. It's, it's taught. And also like, um, especially like with the fear of immigration that's happening right oh, now, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. what's really totally. interesting about that is like a lot of where you find like, and this isn't across the board, but like kind of geographically within the country where you find the staunchest anti like immigration people are people who are in communities that don't really have many immigrants like living there. So it's like the fear of the unknown and it's like assumptions of, of other people versus actually having like an experience to base that on at all. It's like the, the notion of, of danger versus like, yeah, you live in a city, you meet all kinds of people. It's harder to have those notions when you're surrounded by those actual people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not to say nobody, you know, people are imperfect and people have, you know, um, preconceptions and stuff. But I think it's, yeah, when you're around people, it's hard to, 
it's hard to square some of those like racist ideologies. Like if you're around people, you yeah. know, or if, if you hear it or exactly. And, um, so, but that, um, I remember when I was growing up, I wrote a poem in 2008 also called, um, Dego daughters of, of Esther. And, it got published ironically, and it's it's defunct now. But it's called um, the Blue Jew, the Blue Jew Yorker, and he was a Jewish, you know, um, editor, and, and he liked the poem. And this is like a long, long time ago. I mean, we're talking like what twelve years now, but um, it was cathartic. But it was about, you know, that microchasm, which was the thing back then. I mean, if you were Italian and left the faith, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, especially where we were. I mean, this is like late seventies, and. Um, and so anyway, I talked about, like, in the poem, um, you know, about playing with Barbies with Irish Catholic schoolgirls, attending their holy communions and bland Baptist dresses, envying the way their white dresses twirled. And oh, how they'd twirl, those pubescent little brides of Christ. We were never truly trusted by their mothers. And that's how it felt. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how it felt. Like, um, there was always a suspicion. Are you going to tell my kids about your fa- I mean... Because it was like a, you know, it was always that kind of suspicious feeling after that. And that, again, that could have been in my head. I could have been too sensitive. But there was some kind of like, oh, you're a, because there was no Baptist Italians, seven kids, you know, in Northeast Philly, like that I knew of. And everyone went to St. Anselm's and, you know, I would go to their carnivals. That was like our Disney world growing up. So it that all factors in to the book. And I wouldn't change a thing, Alec. I really... You know, some people could harp on that or not. Some people can focus on that and, and, and begrudge. And I used to. There was a time. But as I get older, I'm like, well, that's part of the tapestry. You yeah. know, that was part of the catalyst of of me writing. You know, big and small gifts come from our struggles and come from how you can process it and, and um, connect. Mm-hmm. And it's changed. It's not like it was back then, you know. Uh, do you plan on like writing more, like, do you write, so you write essays and stuff like that. Do you write, uh, narratives also? Like more, um, would you say prose? Yeah. Mm, no, I would say my poetry is almost the form of like, there's a little bit of a rap flair uh-huh. because there's a beat. And because music was my first teacher, I always have like a beat, a rhythm. There's a rhythm going on and it's lyrical and, um, and Charles Bukowski, he believed, he's one of my favorite poets, and he believed that each line of poetry should be an entity of itself, an entity unto itself, should have a beat. And and I, I do believe that, and that's what I kind of lean towards when I write poetry. More, um, there's, there's you, you're going to feel that rap kind of influence there underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, Eminem, oh my word, he's a master at wordplay, at irony, you know? Again, like that play on words. Um, and so that influenced, but in terms of prose or narrative, I don't think I've ever stepped in that genre. Another genre that I really want to investigate and maybe take a workshop is screenplay writing. I have mm-hmm. a couple ideas and I know you're an actor and, um, I don't know that world as, it's a different discipline than what I've been doing, but I do want to understand it and, uh, maybe do that, um, do more freelance writing, um, more poetry and poetry doesn't put keep the lights on and I know that and that's not why I do it but um you know maybe a novel man that sounds painful I don't know if I have it in me I think I have too much ADD to write a novel but 
That's... I would also say if you're interested in screenwriting, also yeah. check out playwriting. Okay. Um, just because yeah. I think, uh, well, one of, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think about this. Uh, there are all different kinds of um, writers. The thing with like screenwriting though, is that in filmmaking, the director is the kind of the, the top, like it's the director's medium. Okay. Like they usually have like the most artistic control on the project. Whereas on plays, it's the playwright. And Got so you. as you were, as we've been talking yeah. today, um, a certain playwright has popped into my head many times. Um, and that's August Wilson and August Wilson. He wrote, um, he wrote, he passed right. away, right. I think like right in the early two thousands, maybe mid two thousands, but he, completed his goal which was he wrote about the african-american experience and he wrote a different play in each decade oh so set in each decade yeah. like um and so he was able to do that and that's the cycle so um from you know the the 1900s to the 90s 1990s there's a play for each and he didn't write them all in order um but he did that and one of the things about his playwriting style, same with Shakespeare, for example, but um, he was very poetic as a writer. And the reason that might appeal to you is because yeah. with screenwriting, like you write a screenplay and then sometimes somebody, like if if it gets picked up, sometimes somebody else then rewrites it and then somebody else rewrites it. Whereas as a playwright, you, like what you write kind of, is what goes more like there's still a whole process of like revising and all of that stuff, but like the, it's more language driven than screenwriting, like screen filmmaking is like visual. You have to do direction like Mm -hmm. outside inside. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then that, but then that can all change. Like the director can change all that too. So it's, yeah. Um, But, but, but both of them are, I know, you know, I didn't even entertain playwriting, but, Thank you. And maybe I'll do that because I was planning in the fall doing uh, like a workshop. Either of them. And I mean, those two things are very similar. I like Patrick Marber. Uh, He did Closer. Okay. I think it's Marber. It's M-A-R-B-E-R, Patrick. And uh, I saw Race with Kerry Washington in 2010 um, at the Barrymore. I feel like both of those, yeah, those were plays. Yeah. There were only three people. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. powerful and I my husband was here on business I was in Virginia I took the train up and I was like six months pregnant and we went to see that play um while he was here on business so it was really powerful yeah nice yeah uh do you want to share anything um sure um well do you want me to um how many do you want just one or two uh let's do yeah let's do two okay so I kind of dog-eared some of the ones um and I had to get my glasses on. Sorry. No worries. And um, while you're doing that, I think I'm going to release this in time. So I think you said you have an event this week. Yes. This Friday, um, I'm one of four um, female poets uh, who are launching books. Um, their names are Denise Bergman, Martha Collins, Grace Bonner, and myself. And we're going to be at the Burroughs Poetry Shop uh, in Dumbo. I believe it's on Front Street and it starts at 7 and it's over at 9. 
Nice. Mm -hmm. And I'll, is there like a place to find that online somewhere? I believe, yeah, it's on their website and I think it's on Facebook as well. Cool. I'll try to, I'll link that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Alec. Thank you. of course. And so, oh, let's see which one. I'm trying to think what we talked about today, which would Mm -hmm. be appropriate. Um, this is called fantasy meeting. Um, and it's, it's, you know, fantasy meeting was written, I guess the catalyst was like, you know, there's always that one person from your past. It's like, you know, if they could see me now kind of, so this was written from that perspective. Let's say we run into one another. Let's say we, I'm sorry, can I start over? Yeah. Okay. Let's say we run into one another unplanned at Grand Central Station at rush hour, marching among the mobs, those coming and going, dragging their wheeled weight luggage through the marble station to the stereo sounds of routine announcements by a man with a thick New York accent who is standing behind official-looking plexiglass, announcing delays and early arrivals, a lost child or found tickets. It's here, among the chaos where we will meet. I'm hot again in this fantasy meeting, successful, a card carrying somebody, someone you would never expect I'll turn out to be, and your eyes will tell of your regret. We'll exchange superficial greetings as strangers often do and lie about pending plans and exciting lives back home. You will try to forget the Florida-shaped birthmark on my thigh, and I will try to forget the surgical scar on your shoulder blade from a ski accident in Aspen when you were 12. Kissing it that night, I saw you naked and vulnerable inside my doorway. Nice. Thank you. And um, do you want to hear high anxiety? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. That's a good one. Okay. And some of these I have experienced mm-hmm. and firsthand. Yeah. Let me go this way. This is high anxiety. Squints into the white horizon just over the sand dunes, down the street from the dive bar, an F-bomb away from spontaneous combustion, exploding particles, gun smoke, a sneeze, the way a shaft of light illuminates the dust mite, static energy, neediness, sleep paralysis, The jump scares from dollar store baked pans springing inside preheated ovens. A heart grown tired of its chronic techno house beat. The pet bird made bald from missing its master. Movie trailers, sleep eating, raw juicing, the incessant meows of a deaf cat. Fingers gesture a flesh gun, now pointing to the head. A thumb hovers over an invisible trigger before the big bang makes a sound. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, where is the, do you have a website or anything? Oh, everyone's asking me that. I, I'm really a wallflower and shy person, but um, I'm going to try to get one soon. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Poets and, um, Poets and Writers Directory, and um, my email's there. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to give my email. I don't know. Um, sure. Um, oh, okay. Or, I don't know. Yeah, whatever you Because it's you really, I, I don't have um, any, I have Facebook, but it's very bare bones and I'm not, 
you know. Well, I'll probably put the LinkedIn link um, in the show notes. Okay. Um, and also, because we were talking before we started recording about social media and stuff yes, like that. Yes, I would say probably uh, get a website. Like, exactly. Um, because, like, I do have, like, I have Instagram. I have Facebook. I've been on Facebook forever. Um, but it's one of those things. It's There's a very unhealthy part of Facebook. Oh, so. exactly. I, I, you know what? I, I made my first meme. I tried it for 30 days for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. I was a Facebook virgin. And I tried it last summer for 30 days. And it, I liken it to um, the Eagles song, um, Hotel California. Yeah. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Yeah. And that's what was happening. So I, it was unhealthy yeah. for me. Um, so for that reason, I'd say websites are still great because mm-hmm. you can just have all of your information there and you can update it when you want. You know what I mean? Um, exactly, it doesn't yeah. require the same checking in that becomes addictive and yes. uh, sometimes uh, creates anxiety. High anxiety. Which, exactly. <laughs> which I don't, I don't yes. need more of myself exactly. sometimes. Um, cool. And the book is available online. Yeah, and Amazon.com. Um, it's available at Barnes & Noble. Physically, you can go to Barnes & Noble on Court Street in Brooklyn. Um, Greenlight on Fulton. Uh, book Culture, on a, it's at 112th. Um, and uh, Burroughs Poetry Shop. And actually, I think Walmart is carrying it online. And uh, eBay is carrying it online. So I guess there's ways of getting it. But thank you so much for your support um, to your audience, to yourself, Alec. Thank you so much for thank inviting you. me. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about today? Um, no, I th- I think this for me, this is this has been putting myself out there, but I'm glad I did. And it was very rewarding to meet you and um, be able to um, connect with your audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank My you. pleasure. So that was my conversation with Carolyn Kenyans. I hope you enjoyed that. And please check out her book, Before the Big Bang Makes a Sound. And if you are New York-based and like poetry, uh, tomorrow, depending on when you're listening to this, tonight, Friday night, February 28th, from 7 to 9 p.m. at Burroughs Brooklyn Poetry Shop. Um, she's going to be there with Dennis, Denise Bergman, Grace Bonner, Martha Collins, um, and they're going to be sharing some some excerpts and some poetry from their books. So check that out. And if you're a writer, you know, keep writing, get your stuff out. It is possible to do. So do it. Share it with the world. Make it happen. And yeah, just keep going forward. Take care. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.